The Reluctant Conformist. A book by Richard Cowley. Narrated by the author. Episode 2 of Chapter 1. Following the army entrance exams, the aspirants, predominantly from privileged private schools, awaited their fate in a small conference room. I've heard that if the interview is cut short, you've botched the papers, and you're out on your ear, one of the candidates stated to the apprehensive group. A well-turned-out straight-backed subaltern escorted individual applicants into the adjacent room for interview and appraisal. Mr. Morrell, the subaltern called out. Not Morrell, sir. Morrell, a stylish, self-assured hopeful, remonstrated before being escorted to his interview by the smirking junior officer. When Mr. Macaulay was called, Magnus followed the subaltern into a stark room that veritably crackled with razor-edged military crispness. The chief interrogator, a stiff, square-shouldered colonel, who was also principal of Welbeck College, sat behind a table with the rest of the assembled team to his left, a mighty force to grill a fifteen-year-old schoolboy sitting in the hot seat at the focal point of the gathering. All present were impeccably attired, in finely tailored khaki service uniforms, resplendent with brilliant white lanyards, red and gold epaulets, waxed and highly polished Sam Brown leathers, and glistening brass paraphernalia, together with a plethora of colourful campaign ribbons, decorations and insignia. The panel's batmen must have worked well into the night to present so impressive a turnout. Well, Macaulay, your maths leaves a lot to be desired, the Colonel Blimp broadcast forcefully, peering hard at the boy over his half-moon glasses before scrutinising the papers in front of him. This confused Magnus, as technical subjects, particularly maths, were his favourite, at which he was normally competent and occasionally shone. If I've failed maths, heaven knows what a pig's ear I've made of the English and general knowledge papers, he mused to himself, with concern. Here, factorise this equation, his interrogator challenged in a plummy staccato. Written on the paper was what Magnus understood to be the algebraic equation for the difference of two squares, but raised to the power of four, something he'd never come across before unsettled by the intimidating and overbearing atmosphere, and without time to think or ask questions, the answer he proposed to the algebraic riddle was incorrect. So that was that. No army education or officer cadetship in prospect for Magnus. Woeful state education, the Welbeck principal commented to his colleagues, leaning forward, kneading his brow. But what do you expect from these people? Thank you, Macaulay. That'll be all. Magnus left the room without saying a word, but seethed internally. These people? But what are you, sir, if not a sanctioned school bully in fancy dress? Humiliated and ashamed, Magnus did not return to the waiting room to join the other candidates, who would guess at his rejection by his hangdog demeanour and the short duration of the interview. Instead, he retreated to the back of the canvas-covered army wagon to endure the journey back to the station hotel where the applicants had been billeted and from there onwards home. At Chester Railway Station, he met a fellow applicant. 
the amiable Mr. Morell. Hello, Macaulay, he called out. How the blazes did you fare in that schmozzle? Not well, I'm afraid, he replied sheepishly. What about you? OK, I believe, he said. Don't worry if you weren't accepted. It's only the blasted army, after all. Good luck! And with that, he waved goodbye and moved off to catch the train back to his boarding school and the prospect of a professional education and commission in Her Majesty's Armed Forces. Magnus admired Mr. Morell's panache and suspected that had they studied together at Welbeck and Sandhurst, they may well have become good friends. The Army Medical was held several weeks before the entrance examination in the early months of 1959, and for the intervening period, Magnus returned home to attend school as it was his crucial final year when the GCE examinations were held. It was winter, and outside the wooden barracks-like hospital where the medical was held, the air was sharp and the pavement was covered in thick, uneven shards of ice. Chilled to the bone, Magnus waited for the bus to Birkenhead, where he would stay overnight with his maternal grandparents. The following day, he would catch the ferry across the River Mersey, together with the late-to-work, early-home, bowler-hatted, deck-strutting Liverpool businessmen, to board the King Ory, a Manx boat, to sail home to the Isle of Man. Whilst waiting outside the military hospital for the bus, Magnus observed the light road traffic passing by. One car in particular caught his attention, not because it was a black and chrome 3.8 Jaguar, or a drophead apple green Riley piloted by a daredevil blonde beauty wearing goggles, but because the sit-up-and-beg Ford Popular had driven past in both directions before pulling up at the bus stop. Where are you going? the young driver called out cheerfully. Birkenhead, Magnus replied. That's where I'm heading. Get in. I'll drive you there, the young man replied, smiling. The fact that the car had driven by several times made Marcus look hard and long at the driver before declining the offer of a lift, which, had it been on the Isle of Man, where hitchhiking was commonplace and safe, he would have gladly accepted. Come ahead! Get in! the motorist insisted. I'll give you a lift. It'll save you time and money. No, thanks, he declined. The bus will be here in a minute, and I have a return ticket. Come on! Get in! the driver insisted, with a menacing edge to his voice. You'll be safe with me. Get in. No, thank you, Magnus stated firmly, raising his hand to signal the bus that had just come into view. Some years later, Magnus recognised the driver's face from the police mugshot on TV. It may have been Ian Brady, who, with Myra Hindley, was convicted of murdering five young people during the 1960s. The depraved team collectively known as the Moors Murderers, disposed of their victims on the wasteland of Saddleworth Moor. That wasn't the only nasty surprise associated with being absent from school to take the army medical. When Magnus arrived back at Douglas High School, he discovered that his name had been left off the GCE art examination list, as he had topped the class in both art mock tests, which provided a gauge to the pupils' final examination prospects, the disqualification was totally unreasonable and unexpected. His appeal to the school headmaster proved futile. Because of tension between Magnus and the art teacher, 
he left school with one less certificate than should have been the case. It's probable that having an additional subject, specifically art, would have made little difference throughout his erratic working life. This episode reinforced Magnus's growing belief that many in authority frequently abuse the privilege their office affords. This understanding ultimately crystallized into a lifelong wariness of powerful, inconsistent, and self-righteous officialdom. The seeds of Magnus's guarded approach to authority were sown well before the art teacher denied him entry for the school leaving certificate. Three years earlier, he and two friends were hauled before the bench for several childish misdemeanors, which included lifting a handful of chocolate bars from an ice cream kiosk next to the gypsy fortune teller's booth in Groudle Glen, a tourist woodland. The police inadvertently legitimized the summer trader's exaggerated claim on the charge sheet by stating that a box containing a gross of chocolate bars had been stolen, a good result for police efficiency and prosecution statistics, and an unexpected windfall profit from unsold, discolored, end-of-season stock for the retailer whose potentially fraudulent insurance claim was no doubt paid in full. All the adults benefited from the conspiracy at the expense of the twelve-year-old lads whose villainous stupidity promoted the profit-making scam. For their scandalous behaviour, the three sweet-toothed delinquents were subject to the full might of the law. The twelve-year-old lads were fingerprinted, mugshot photographed, both full face and profile, and exposed to a judicial system that favoured corporal punishment. Magistrate Bircher Quayle, or one of his ilk, convicted and sentenced Magnus and his fellow delinquent to be birched. Curiously, the magnificent building in which Magnus came face to face with the might and impersonal callousness of the law was one of the finest on the island, and had been designed by his great-great-uncle and built by his great-great-grandfather. The courthouse, originally built as the island's headquarters for the independent order of the Odd Fellows, was but one of the many famous architectural triumphs the 19th-century entrepreneurial Robinson duo built in the island's capital, Douglas. It's interesting to conjecture upon how the ghostly manifestation of Magnus's illustrious forebears might have reacted to the ignominy of their direct descendant being debased and flayed in the bleak basement beneath one of their most admired buildings. Before the punishment was carried out, a policeman thrashed the birch rods across a tabletop in front of the lads, so the youngsters could contemplate upon the excruciating pain which would shortly be coming their way. One by one, the terrified children were forced to bend over a prison cell bunk to be lashed on their bare buttocks with a bundle of four feet long birch rods wielded by a burly policeman with his sleeves rolled up to better lay it on. It was never confirmed, although Magnus thought it may have been the case, that the notary bearing witness to the punishment in the prison cell where the flogging was inflicted was none other than the sentencing magistrate himself. Whilst the lashes were being inflicted, this sweaty-skinned witness stood half-hidden in a shadowy corner in the dingy prison cell, nervously playing with the loose change deep inside his trouser pocket. In attendance also was the school doctor, who served a dual purpose. He was a witness to the flogging, 
but also conveniently on hand in case the overzealous flaying caused gashes in the children's skin that required medical attention. Magnus's immunity from the social ridicule and humiliation through the miscreant's identity being withheld from the newspaper reports wasn't extended to one of the other indicted children in the courtroom lineup that morning, in addition to the barbarous punishment inflicted on him in the prison cell he was hauled before the entire assembly of his Manx private school peers for public chastisement and degradation. Not content with the lashing he received at the hands of the police, the headmaster thought it apt to meter out an additional punishment for wrecking dishonour upon so hallowed an institution as his school. Magnus's partner in crime was given six of the best as an inducement to behave more gentlemanly in future. After being pilloried in front of his fellow pupils, rehabilitation was impossible. No matter what he did, nor how hard he tried, he was never able to live down the scandalous public shaming he suffered at his private fee-paying school, where pupils were being groomed as potential leaders of the British Empire. Twenty years later, during the 1970s, he lobbied the European Court of Human Rights to pressure Tinwald, the Manx Parliament, to rescind the laws that allowed miscreant children to be flogged and demeaned for minor infringements of the law. Birching was the rule of the day into the early 1980s at Eton College, one of England's oldest and most revered schools where the pupils tend to be the legitimate and not-so-legitimate offsprings of the aristocracy and the obscenely wealthy. There was, however, a significant difference between the punishment being inflicted within the hallowed halls of Eton College, to that enforced in the grimy prison cell in the Isle of Man. At Eton, miscreant scholars may have been subject to a beating by a learned schoolmaster who could well have been quietly muttering a self-absolving verse in Latin whilst imposing the punishment. The Manx approach was more rustic and parochial. A strapping copper lashed the child criminals, no doubt at the time, cursing the fact that he'd been singled out to do so. The Eton method demonstrated significant long-term advantages over the Manx technique. Many Etonian alumni did indeed become masters of the British Empire, and several have occupied 10 Downing Street as Prime Ministers of Great Britain. So smitten might others of the well-heeled ex-pupils have been by the success of their old school's harsh disciplinary regime, that they chose to relive their aspirations at the hands of the Dominic's Queen Bee, Claudia the Sting of Ladbrook Grove. This latex lady may well have reduced a ruthless Minister of Defence to a quivering jelly by the cruel smirk playing across her glossy purple lips, or eke out squeals of eye-watering glee from a tight-lipped Tory peer with a well-earned snapping flick of her wetly lubricated red leather thong. Magnus's miscreant mate didn't fare as well as the born-to-rule, eaten-educated defenders of these titillating treats. After an unsettled life, the three-times-married seeker died alone, unhappy, and far too young. 